Hello, everyone. I'm Daniel Bryant, and I'd like to welcome you to the Ambassador Living on the Edge podcast, the show that focuses on all things related to cloud native platforms, creating effective developer workflows, and building modern APIs. Today, I'm joined by Charity Majors, CTO at Honeycomb, and author of many great blog posts on observability and leadership. I was keen to pick Charity's brains around how engineers should approach monitoring and observability when building microservices-based distributed systems. I also wanted to dive a little bit deeper into the topic of observability-driven development, which I've seen Charity talk about now for several years. And finally, I was keen to understand a little bit more about what the Honeycomb team have been up to recently and explore what problems their observability tooling suite helps engineers solve. For example, the new Bubble Up problem identification feature looked super cool. If you like what you hear today, I definitely encourage you to pop over to our website. That's www.getambassador.io, where we have a range of articles, white papers, and videos that provide more information for engineers working in the Kubernetes and cloud space. You can also find links there to our latest releases, such as the Ambassador Edge stack, including service preview and the developer portal, our open source Ambassador API gateway, and also our CNCF hosted telepresence tool too. So hi, Chatty, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. Could you briefly introduce yourself, please, and share a recent career highlight? A recent career highlight? Oh, my goodness. Well, I am the co-founder of Honeycomb.io. I've made a career out of being basically the first ops infrastructure nerd to join teams of startup engineers. And about a year ago, my co-founder and I traded places. She became CEO and I became CTO. And that was honestly the best thing that ever happened to me because <laughs> I, I never ever ever wanted to be CEO it just kind of like but you know I feel like my career has been I've always been motivated not by doing things because oh this is fun but because there's a problem that needs to be solved and I will get it done you know and yeah. and and that had to be CEO for three and a half years. It just about killed me, but it's done and I will never do it again. Awesome stuff, Charity. Uh, so I wanted to ask the traditional first question on this podcast about developer experience, developer loops. It can also be ops themed as you and I were chatting off mic yeah. about this, but kind of, I w- I'd love to hear a really, without naming names, but a really gnarly story around the capability to <laughs> rapidly code, test, deploy, release, and verify. Yeah. I'm sure you've got many from your super interesting I do. past. I do. And, you know, like Honeycomb was really born out of my experience. I was the first infrastructure lead at Parse, the mobile backend as a service. And this was a fun set of problems. We were doing a lot of like things before they we were doing, you know, microservices before they were microservices. We were doing like all this, but like it was a platform as a service, right? So you could Mm -hmm. build your mobile app using our APIs and SDKs and you never had to know or think about what was going on. Great for them. They just, you know, hit save, upload the mobile app, cool, la la la. And then in the middle of the night, their 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 app would hit number one in the iTunes store or something. And guess who gets paged? Well, <laughs> yeah, right. And because our interface gave no feedback to them about, like, say, the performance of the queries that they were composing, because it was just mm. in an SDK, right? They couldn't yeah. see the, that they was doing a five x full table scan on mm. on like the MongoDB table. You know, like they had. No idea. They weren't even being bad engineers. They just couldn't see it. We had over a million mobile apps by the time I left. And, you know, the the problems that were just dazzlingly hard were the ones where it could be something you did as a developer that broke your app. It could be something we did. It could be some combination of the two. Or it could be something, because they're all shared hardware pools and shared databases, something that any one of the other million apps sharing some component had done at the wrong time. And, like, all right. So I, I do have a, like a bug in particular that, that I'm thinking of that that was right. So so I'm sitting there at work one day and, you know, 
and the customer support people come over to me and they're very upset. They're like, pushes down. And I'm like, pushes not down. Like it's in a queue and I'm getting pushes. <laughs> yeah. Push cannot be down, right? They're very insistent. And I'm just like, you're wrong. You know, go away. The next <laughs> day they come back and they're like, push is still down. And people are getting very upset. All right. So I finally go, this, this is like how most of my stories, are. I finally go and I start digging into it like manually, like what is going on? Well, it turns out that Android devices, you know, I don't know if it's still true. They used to have to keep a, a, a socket open to subscribe to pushes on a, on a channel. So every Android device we ever wanted to push to had a socket open. And so we had this pool, you know, that was auto scaled that had like a million connections to each of them. And at one point we had increased the size of the ASG, which brought up some more capacity, load balanced everything. And it turns out this particular time when we upsized it, when it added the new nodes to the round robin DNS request, it exceeded the UDP packet size in the response, which is usually fine. It's supposed to be fine. In the spec, it says it's supposed to fail over to TCP if it fails in UDP, which it did for everyone in the world, except for anyone coming through a very particular router in Eastern Europe. For them, <laughs> it could not resolve push.parse.com and it was completely down. This is like one of the outages that I use to illustrate to people what, I, what I'm what i trying to like tell them about how you have to give up the sense of like control. I'm going to predict the things yeah. that are going to happen. I'm going to manage yeah, my yeah. thresholds. I, I can curate them. I can, I can flip through my knowledge of past outages to like tell what's going on. Like you just have to accept that most of the problems you have in the future, you cannot have predicted. You'll, you will only see once. It will never happen again. If you invest a lot of time into like creating a dashboard so you can find it immediately the next time. You're just going to have like a, a past that's littered with failed dashboards that are never seen again. You know, like you have to like switch from this monitoring model to one of really actively instrumenting and like being in much more of a constant conversation with your code in production and, and pushing point of testing out to encompass it as well. Very interesting charity. I chatted to Sam Newman last week, and one thing he said, and I think it's what I'm hearing from you, is as a system grows in scale and complexity, you can no longer monitor for what's wrong. You almost Correct. have to look at like the business. Are we allowing our customers yes. to do the thing they should? And when it's not, then dive in to figure out what actually is wrong. The number of things that you are allowed to care about shrinks like relentlessly, and it and, and you get to the point where it's like, okay. This is, this is this is where people have to make the leap from, you know, monitoring to SLOs, because when you have SLOs, you're like, this is the business contract with our users. And if they're not in pain, we're not going to wake anyone up because otherwise you drive yourself mad. And if you're like, well, ideally, I would page people before my users notice. Don't. Mm, interesting. <laughs> just don't try. Just don't because it's impossible. You're just going to either burn your people out or not. You know, you just have to draw a bright line there and say that it's users being able to tell, you know, but the thing is, that it's not that when I say you're allowed to care about relentlessly fewer things, that's from a that's the very blunt perspective of, you know, waking people up in the middle of the night. It's actually there are more and more things that you have to care about sometimes or figure out how to be sensitive to, you know, and this is why I feel like if you actually want to build these systems to scale, if you're writing code for that system, you should be in the system looking at it through the perspective of your instrumentation every goddamn day. Or when something breaks, you're not going to know what weird looks like. Oh, yeah, you know, you have to, because your, your sixth sense of, I just shipped something. Is it doing what I wanted it to? And does anything else look weird? And you always want to make it more specific than that. But if you do, like, don't, because weird is a, is a, is a thing, right? It's that spidey sense. It's, and you, and if you learn to 
follow your curiosity and if it's rewarded in a short amount of time, that's really the best way to do it. I've heard you talk about this before, Charity, like that kind of almost being able to feel like feel a hum of your system or, or know that steady state. And I think it's something I've made that mistake in the past. I'm like, it looks weird, but has it always looked weird? Yeah. If, you, if you're not in there every day, you don't know. And then you're going to waste even more time trying to figure it out. I hear you. Well said. Well said. So I was looking through uh, your Twitter uh, today and you've got that evergreen tweet pinned on there, which I thought was fantastic. And you said, um, observability, short and sweet. Can you understand whatever internal state the system has gotten itself into just by inspecting and interrogating its output, even if, especially if you've never seen it before? And is that pretty much still your working definition of what observability is about? And without shipping custom code to handle it, because if you have to ship code to handle it that implies that you had to be able to predict it and anticipate it in advance yeah and this is a, this is a definition that has you know a heritage in mechanical engineering of course they get very huffy when we <laughs> use their words but <laughs> yeah. you know it's not the first thing that we borrowed and so whatever but yeah absolutely i think that that you know and it's a very it's a socio-technical definition right this is not something where you could buy a tool drop it in there and ding, ding you get yeah. it right it's 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 the people their knowledge, their practices, it's the systems, it's the tools you use to, you know, like it's, it's all of it, which is why it's not an easy answer, but it's also, it's a very approachable one. And I think it's very amenable to small steps. Yeah, nice chat. I chatted to Nora Jones actually a couple of weeks ago. And Nora and John Osborne, many of the folks are doing this kind of, they're really echoing this socio-technical aspect. Mm -hmm. And I think it's something we don't, hear about quite so often in computing at the moment like say yes. in uh, airplane crashes and so forth we always look at the socio-technical side the technology combined with the humans do you think we need to do that more in computing this might have been the thing that i've been thinking about this year more than anything else like i think about it even in context of like this is what you know the 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 blog post that i wrote that is still the most popular of all is the one about the pendulum you know the engineer manager pendulum oh yeah that's your great. career yeah. mm -hmm. right and, and i feel like that the socio-technical language gives me another way of explaining why that matters because, you know, the scarcest resource in all of our lives is engineering cycles, right? Mm -hmm. yep. And the difference between a low-performing team and a high-performing team can be very difficult to quantify. Workloads are diff different in difficulty and, you know, it's, it, can be, it can be very difficult and we do end up and relying on our intuition a bunch. I think that the four door report metrics are really key. Oh, I love them. But then yeah, if yeah. you're trying to debug it, if you're like, okay, I've got a team, it takes us a month to ship our code, you know, and, and you know that you're getting better. Why does it, does it matter to have technical managers? How technical? You know, how close should they be to the code? How, how much systems knowledge do they need? How much people knowledge do they need? You know, and I think that this is a really interesting way of just explaining why you can't just hire better people or just train your people. You can't just buy tools. You can't just fix your code. It takes a lot of judgment and like, and you have to be able to like survey the landscape and go, this is what's holding us back at the moment. Let's work on yeah. this first. Yes. And then you buy yourself some time and some space to like, what's the next thing that's holding us back? You know, and without that literacy of both, you know, going how to go deep on the people and on the code, I think that you're really just going to struggle. Yeah, what you say in there, Chad, reminds me, one of my mentors, I asked a couple of years ago, what should I be learning about? And he said to me, at systems, learn about systems. And he recommended a couple yeah. of fantastic books. Yeah. I'm guessing that's what I'm hearing from you as well. The system context of knowing where to. Yes. But I would say that you're not going to learn it from books. <laughs> no, that's I cool. would say yeah. put yourself in the on-call rotation. Like I think that living, breathing systems, like I feel like you can't, anybody who claims to be a senior engineer who doesn't know how 
who doesn't have that intuition, this is a healthy system, this is not, isn't a senior engineer, you know, and there are a lot of people who are very good at data structures and algorithms, who I would not trust with a 10 foot pole of my system. (laughs) And I feel like DevOps, like we talk about it, like this newish thing, but it's not, it's really returning to our roots, right? Like, yeah, yeah. There was a time when you wrote code on production for fuck's sake right like and then there's specialization and all this stuff gets you know torn up and you know scattered to the corners of the earth and it's just like we lost something critical there of just like understanding what had actually happened when we wrote this code yeah i remember when liz fong jones joined honeycomb i'm a big fan of liz's work in general and i remember them saying that they were entering the honeycomb on call rotation and i was like what even a person of liz's fame has to be on call at honeycomb yeah, you have to. Like we, we, we very much, and I'm a big fan of Liz too. Yeah. But we very much agree on that. You know, it's something that there's no substitute, and we take it very seriously that we live what we preach. You know, our Dora metrics is four metrics. For us, we looked them up out of curiosity a little bit ago, and they're an order of magnitude better than the elite status. Oh, seriously? Mm-hmm. Wow. Yeah, because and here's the thing, like I feel like in we have just, our expectations are so low. Our, <laughs> our bar is so low. What we expect a, a life of like living as a computer engineer, we accept so much pain and suffering and wasted time and frustration. And we have a sense of humor about it. We're like, this is just what it's like to do mm. stuff with computers. You never know what's going on. Ha 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 ha. Yeah, you know, yeah. how funny is it? You know, <laughs> we're just going to ship some more broken shit onto the system that we <laughs> yeah. never really understood. And we're going to cross our fingers and watch our monitoring checks and like, then go home and you know maybe we get woken up a few times a week like how is that okay like i feel like everyone should be on call but getting woken up two or three times a year is reasonable well said (laughs) right and if you're if you're if you're if you're building a system and you expect to understand it and you expect to understand when something looks weird you know i'm not trying to it is way harder to dig yourself out of that hole than it is like we've never gotten into it like mm. <laughs> you know so yeah, it's yeah. harder but it's not impossible no that's superb Chad. that's superb just uh, switching gears a little bit now i was super interested about your recent article on the new stack around observability driven development i've seen you talk about it a couple times before but i still haven't seen it get like enough love yet uh, could you just briefly introduce the the topic for folks like, i'm sure most yeah. folks are familiar with tdd but you've talked about odd tdd was like revolutionary right mm-hmm. it, it made it so that you know we could tell when we had new regressions but you know it really boiled down everything that you were doing to this very small repeatable determinist you know snippets and it did that by stripping out everything that was real <laughs> yeah everything yeah. That was variable or interesting or you know chaotic or contentious and we're just like eh let's just mock it right <laughs> so like that's great like i'm not saying anyone should not do that we should all do that also if we accept that our job isn't done until our users are using our code and we see that it's working that's just step one like tdd like basically it ends at the border of your laptop <laughs> yeah that's it yeah <laughs> right and and like i feel like once your tests are done cool but like you should never accept a pull request or submit a pull request unless you're confident that you will know how you will know if this is not working once it's in prod well, i actually pulled that out and highlighted that in charity because i thought that was just a fantastic line like that that sixth sense of like I feel like we've been leaning on auto instrumentation, like the magical stuff from the vendors for so long that like so many engineers have just kind of lost that that muscle for like just thinking about what is future me going to wish that I had done right now. <laughs> yeah. You know, like yeah, yeah. 
And, and there are ways to make it easier. God knows we've done a lot of them, but there's something that's irreducible there where you just have to be thinking, this is going to be important, right? And putting that in the blob so that future you has it when it's the thing that matters. And I feel like if you do that, like it's it's instrumenting with an eye to your future self. It is, I think a really key part of this that most companies haven't done yet is automating everything between when you merge and when it goes live and making that short, like under 15 minutes. So that if you merge your code, you just, you, you don't have to wait for a signal that someone's done, done something. You don't have to like do, you just know that within like 10, 15 minutes, it's going to be live. Yes, use feature flags. Yes, use canaries. Yes, use, you know, yes, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah. This can be done safely. This can be done safe. But because we haven't done that, it, it introduces this huge gap, right, in time when it's a variable and you're going to move on to something else and someone else is probably going to take it and make sure that it goes live. And like, who remembers to come back in a day or two or a week or however long? And then it has to be short so that you have the muscle memory, so that you have this persistent itch in the back of your mind. It's not done until you've gone and looked at it and made sure that nothing else looks weird. But like the best engineers I've ever worked with are the ones who have two buffers open at all times. One is their code. One is looking at it in production. And observability matters because if you're just looking at the, you know, time series aggregates, you see the spikes, but you can't break it down and say, yeah. oh, yes, this spike is, you know, this version, this canary, these characteristics, these 10 different things. Are, you know, you have to be able to go from high level to low level and back and quickly, or you're just guessing again. You're just back to like guessing and trying to interpret like low level ops, you know, system metrics and translate them into the language of your code. You know, there's a whole thing. But once you get it going, you can expect your developers to ship better code consistently to find bugs before your users do. And everybody just has a lot more time to make forward progress. Yeah, I like it, Charity. There's something I'm definitely hearing from you is that engineers do need an understanding of the business of the KPIs, say, and also the yes. SLIs at the ops level. So you, I guess as, as some developers I work with, they just want to write code. They just want to ship things. But I think what I'm hearing from you is you do need a bit of knowledge either side there, business and ops as well. You don't have to be an expert. You have to know, like, is my user going to be happy about this or not? You know, that's not terribly hard. Yes. And like, you know, and if you weren't aligned with them, then you probably should be working on something in academia. <laughs> <laughs> yes. But here's the thing. Like, I feel like so many people who like get all curmudgeonly about this, they've actually just been burned. They've worked with teams that made it painful to care. They've worked at places where they got punished for caring. Yeah. And and now they've developed this like this armor. But like most, if not all engineers got into this because we are curious, because we love building things, because oh, yes. we like to have an impact, because we like nobody likes to put a lot of effort into something that nobody uses. You know, this is the universal hunger. And so I feel like it's the job of the ops teams and, you know, whatever teams to <laughs> to be friendly, to like invite engineers in, to serve them the tools so that it is rewarding, so that you get that dopamine hit when you go to look at your thing, you see the spike, you're like, oh, I'm going to figure it out. And you figure it out within a few minutes. Like that, you get hooked on that feeling. You know, like I don't feel like this is a 
hard thing. It's just we have to deal with like the scars of past past yeah. traumas. I can relate to that, like pushing code into prod and, and just seeing like I had you know Nagios or whatever and just thinking like not quite sure, like CPUs. And up. then you panic and yeah. then you're just like shit, my night is screwed, you know, and people are yelling at you and like there's a there's there's a lot of places where a lot of terrible things have been done to people, it's true. <laughs> <laughs> Indeed. So I'm guessing I mean that's very much what you you and the team are working on at Honeycomb, right? Being yeah. able like I've heard you talk about high cardinality before. Mm-hmm. If you if you spot that spike with things like honeycomb you can dive in and figure out what's going on right we have this super cool thing called bubble up so if you accept my definition of observability there are a lot of technical things that flow from that that let's say other tools out there in the field that call themselves observability tools do not have (laughs) which really pisses me off (laughs) it's fine (laughs) (laughs) Uh, (laughs) yeah but but if you do accept that then then like you need high cardinality, you need high dimensionality. And Honeycomb has this cool thing called bubble up where if you see a spike and you want to understand it, you just draw a little blob around it, say, like, explain this to me, and we will pre-compute for all of the hundreds of dimensions that are inside the thing you care about and as well as the like baseline outside for the entire window. And then we diff them and sort them. So you can see like if, if there are 20 different things that have to go wrong for those errors, like You'll just see them all at the top. Just like, oh, these things are different about these requests that I care about. It is the closest thing I've ever seen to magic. And this is why I get pissed off when people talk about AI ops too. Like, fuck AI ops. Like, <laughs> that's not like this is like the purest distillation of this terrible thing in the industry where like C level and VP of engineering don't trust their teams. They trust vendors more than they trust their own engineers. Because engineers come and go. Vendors are forever, right? And so they've been signing these checks, tens of million dollars for any vendor that is like, you don't have to understand your systems. I will tell you what to look at and care about. That's what AIOps is. And it's bullshit because what we should be in the business of doing is helping not just one or two people understand the system just in times of crisis, but like making the system like self-explaining, making it tractable, building social tools where the bits of my brain where I'm understanding and querying my part of the system where I understand it deeply and I'm an expert, other people can come and see it. See how I interact with my part of the system. Because we're all like building on a slice of these distributed systems and responsible for the whole goddamn thing right right. and so we have to be able to tap each other's brains the part that i understand you have to have access to you know and we have to like focus on taking the engineer and just letting engineers do what they do best which is thinking creatively and spotting things they care about and adding meaning to things and then do make the the computers do the things machines do really well which is computing lots and lots and lots of numbers and serving them up in a way that makes it simple and easy for you to see what actually matters yeah, that's, that's awesome, Charity. I chatted, I think it was Ben Siegelman recently, and he was saying uh, the UX of these systems is one of the hardest things. And I think I've seen you yeah. and Liz and, and several folks at conferences saying the same things. I'm guessing you're putting a lot of time into the UX, the developer experience, yeah. the UX of, of Honeycomb, right? Yeah, for sure. Yeah, it's very important to us that we don't want to tell you what you should be looking at. We don't want to like take data away and be like, no, 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 we know what you want. Because, you know, any... Any machine can detect a spike. Only you can tell me whether it's good or bad, right? But what we can do is make it so that, you know, anomalies like rise to the top and your eye can pick out patterns, right? That you can attach meaning to and then you can go and interact with. Honestly, this is why I hate the three pillars. There are not three pillars. (laughs) Pillars are bullshit. Pillars are just data formats, right? Like, so you've got metrics, logs, and traces. You've got your metrics tool. You, You see a spike. 
but you can't drill down. You can't see what they those requests have in common because at the time of capturing that data, it was all spread out like into like hundreds of different metrics that have no connective tissue whatsoever. You can't see what they have in common. You can't even ask those questions. So you go and you jump into your logging tool. Problem with logs is you can only see what you know you put there. You can yeah. only find what you know to look for, right? Yeah. So you can find the things you can search for, but you're always finding the last outage. Even if you're lucky enough to find the problem, then you're copy pasting an ID over in your fucking tracing tool. So, <laughs> yeah. like, you've got you've got a human here that's just like you know like that's and that's stupid not to mention the fact it costs three times as much right like really like the tracing is just a waterfall you're just visualizing by time right like and so if we like our events our spans and and we can derive metrics from them like you can derive all of the data formats from the arbitrarily wide structured data blob that we use so this is why like your data dogs your new relics and your splunks are all trying to get to where we sit technically faster than we can get to where they sit business-wise. That is super interesting. So uh, maybe this is an impossible question, but if folks are just getting into this, they're they're engineers, where would you advise them to start with observability? Um, So at least a third of observability is in how you collect that data. And the only people out there that have observability tools are us and Lightstep, for the record. (laughs) Those are the two. The rest are monitoring tools and APM tools. Those are very different beasts. I I don't usually say this as directly, but I'm a little pissed off today. You should start by installing the beelines, which are basically just really rich SDKs with, you know, the exponential backoffs and retries and batching and some really nice stuff for high throughput. If you install them, it's about as hard as installing New Relic libraries and it gives you about the same amount of data. So you get popped into the very traditional, you know, you install a library. Cool. Now I've got my default metrics and graphs that I can interact with. But it's more than that because you can also like jump down into them and like slice and dice and get all the way down to the raw requests. And and you can start, you know, anything in your code that you're like, oh, this might be interesting. Like we auto wrap and, you know, capture di- timing information for all the calls out across the network and all the database calls and all this stuff magically. But you can also go, oh, here's a shopping cart ID. This will be useful. I'm going to stuff that in there. Oh, this user ID will be interesting. I'm going to stuff that in there. Like in addition to all the stuff we pre-populate, you know, you can stuff your own stuff in there, which is how it becomes yours, (laughs) which is how while you're developing, you're just like, you know, you're typing. um, Instead of printing something out in a log line, you just stuff it into the honeycomb blob. And then the cool thing about this is, you know, uh, cost scales linearly with adding more metrics, right? And custom metrics, super expensive. Yes. It is effectively free to put more bits of data onto the honeycomb because these arbitrarily wide structured data blobs it's just the cost of the memory to append it (laughs) and ship it over the wire which is dirt cheap right so it incentivizes you to just like anytime you see something that might be interesting toss it in there like maturely instrumented systems with honeycomb usually have 300 to 500 dimensions per row they're quite wide you know so you just stuff it in there and forget it and someday a year or two down the line (laughs) you've got it and it happens to be that thing that is the thing that is you know caught you know it's 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 amazing you just you accrue more and more and more and more and more and more data it doesn't get more and more and more and more expensive and then it feels like magic when suddenly you run bubble up and you're like oh shit i added that years ago that's the problem it's kind of cool that incentivizing people to do the right thing is so important because engineers we're kind of we're smart and lazy call it what you will but we we react to incentives right Mm-hmm. So if you incentivize people to like, hey, put this in so you can use it in a few years time, yeah. we're going to do it, aren't we? Yeah. 
yeah, nice. <laughs> nice. Final question, Chatty. What are you looking forward to over the coming, say, six, 12 months? What's exciting in your world, in Honeycomb's world? What do you think uh, we as engineers should be looking to? Oh, I'm really excited. This is a weird one, but this is how you know I've gone corporate. We just hired uh, George Miranda, who is this amazing product marketing person who used to be an engineer. And he he's the reason that you now know about ODD, observability-driven development, because he was like, this feels like a thing that people, you know, so he's like, all of the shit that I've just been kind of like flinging out into the universe over the past three years, like, is going to start taking shape into better stories. We have never found it difficult to sell to engineers. Mm-hmm. But engineers don't tend to have budgets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so it's typically their bosses, right? And so like we we are we are putting more effort into arming our champions so that when they take it to their C-suite and their VPs, we have something that looks, you know, professional and plausible and stuff. We also have this really cool thing, um, secure tenancy, which if you're running on-prem, you can use Honeycomb. Just as though, you know, there's just a proxy you run on your side that streams the events through, it encrypts, we never see anything, and it's super cool, we got a patent for it, and so even on-prem people can now use this. Uh, we've got a bunch of financial institutions, oh, we also got HIPAA compliance, right? So oh, like, wow. cool. all cool. like you want to hear like the interesting technical things, but that has never been what's hard for <laughs> us. <laughs> the technical stuff is already done. It's all the business stuff that is finally starting to fall into place. <laughs> yeah, I get that. The stuff we're doing at Data Iron Ambassador, it's the same kind of thing. Uh, we, we're really yeah. investing in telling stories. And I, over the last, like, say, yeah. six months, I've really seen the value of, of it, even for engineers, too, telling that compelling yeah. story. Because we as humans, we kind of, that's yeah. the way we share knowledge, right? It's down through the ages. We tell these stories. So. You know, people have been coming to Honeycomb, and it took me a long time to realize that, you know, people were coming to Honeycomb, and we'd ask them, oh, what other tools are you, you know, going after? And a lot of them were like, none. And we're like, this is weird. This is not what we were told would happen, right? But they weren't coming to us with a checklist. They were coming to us because of the stories that we were telling about how you could write code better and have better lives as engineers. Yeah, yeah. And and they wanted to grow up with us and, and be part that's of that. Cool. I mean, that's a, that's a privilege, right? Being able to be part of that journey. It really us. is. It's been pretty amazing. Awesome stuff, Chatty. Well, re- really appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Yeah, thanks for having me. 